this evening at six o'clock for that. Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that we will continue this service as we have begun it, with fixing our eyes upon your greatness and your glory, with seeking for your name to be hallowed and for your kingdom to come, and for it all to be done in the great name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so as we look at your word, Father, we pray again that you would hallow your name, that you would bring your kingdom, that your will would be done here on earth, here in this moment, here in our lives, as it is in heaven, as we hear your life-giving word. Amen. Um, I don't know if it would be wise to speak about football this morning, so we'll, we'll start with rugby, shall we? That's a safer, safer place to go to. Um, and, and, and sad to say that one of our elders the other day, Mark, um, spoke a heresy. Uh, not a theological heresy, um, but he said, we're, we're talking about the beautiful game of rugby, and he said, the scrums are dull, they are boring, they are a waste of time, and the game ought to be rid of them. He might as well have said, why don't they rip the heart and the soul out of the beautiful game? Heresy. Now, when it comes to sport, you could say that is a valid conversation. When it comes to sport, the, the aim is to entertain, isn't it? So the question of how can the sport adapt uh, in order to suit those who watch it is a good question to ask about sport. Can't do that with Christ, can we? We can't squash Christ into match our preferences. We can't diminish Christ so that he fits with our lives and with our plans. We can't. We can try, though, can't we? We can try. Now, we can say with our mouths, Christ is supreme. And then we go and live our own way. Uh, really saying, no, I will set the terms of my relationship with Jesus. Uh, my time is going to be spent as best suits me. My money, my prayer. Prayer's hard, so I'm, I'm not going to bother with it and... Uh, Life is too busy to read the Bible and church doesn't always fit into my, into my plans and telling others about Jesus, that's not really for me and fighting the sin in my heart, it's just too mucky. And yet, of course, I will rely on Christ to meet my demands because Christ is supreme, of course, we say. But really, we go and do it our own way. We adapt the sport to suit the audience. We adapt the faith to suit the faithful. This is really pertinent to our times. Now, I was reading someone reflecting on some kind of philosophical analysis of our times, and this person observes this. He says, it is harder um, to be a Christian in our climate. Um, in our times, it's hard to be a really committed Christian. We think, okay. He says, actually, also, it is hard in our times to be a really committed atheist. He says, what is easier is to be spiritual but not religious. That, that, that's easy in our times. That when we boil it down to saying, I will do it the way that I like. I will set the terms. I will, I, when I say that Christ is supreme, actually in the way I live, I'm just lying. It's easier to be spiritual but not religious. Now, with all of that, we are at the end of John chapter 4. Now, this is the last time we're going to be in John for a while. We're going to take a break. some point next year we will come back. Uh, but here at the end of John 4, 43 to 54, we, we, we see the kind of welcome that honours Jesus and a kind of welcome that doesn't honour Jesus. And the challenge for us is to think about how we relate to Jesus Christ. Is Christ supreme, not only in our words, but in our lives? 
Or even in our relationship with him, are we trying to call the shots? Well, let's have a look. First of all, a welcome without honour, the first few verses. You might remember that John 4 begins with Jesus leaving Judea. He's travelling back up to the north of the country, to Galilee, going from Judea to Galilee. Back in Judea, his popularity is rising, we're told. And it's not time for him to be drawn into conflict with the religious authority, so he leaves. And, he, and on his journey, he travels through the area of Samaria. Um, he, he has this chance encounter with a woman, and, and that chance encounter leads to this woman going to her town and inviting everybody to come and see Jesus. And they come, and they see Jesus, they hear what Jesus has to say, and they believe that he is the saviour of the world. And Jesus spends a couple of days with them and then continues his journey on towards Galilee. And he arrives in Galilee, we hear. Uh, and what kind of reception does he get when he arrives? We'll, we'll look first at verse 44. It, it says, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. So that primes our understanding for what happens in the next verse. We know Jesus is not going to be honoured. Verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him. What kind of welcome is this? Well, we're told the reason why they welcomed him. Why did they welcome him? Because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had been there. Now we need to remember what John has already told us. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem to the Passover festival, an annual festival when people from all over the country would gather in Jerusalem. Um, And it says at the end of John 2, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. There there were people who believed, but their belief wasn't right, and Jesus saw right into their heart. He saw that they just liked to see miracles. Their response to Jesus was a superficial response. Jesus knew that, he knows people, so he wouldn't trust himself to them. And now we learn that some of those are from Galilee. So when Jesus comes home, these people, they welcome him, but it is a welcome without honour. It wasn't really Jesus that they wanted. They wanted to be entertained. That's got to make us feel quite uneasy as we sit here this morning. Uh, We have here in our passage that there are people who welcome Jesus. They are happy for Jesus to play a part in their lives, but it's a welcome that does not honour him. Christmas is a time when we have to be careful of this, isn't it? Christmas is a time of year when there is more talk of Jesus than at any other point. Maybe there is, in some sense, more welcome of Jesus, more acceptance of Jesus, but the welcome is not always the kind that honours him. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, some fictional correspondence between two devils who are trying to tempt a man away from following Jesus, and uh, they, they, they share tactics. And, and recently, somebody added to the collection a Christmas letter, uh, uh, a letter of these, these devils sharing advice, and, and it says, if somebody starts to think about the Christmas story, be sure to let that story go no further in his mind. Because people seem to love babies. So so make them seem, make him think it is nothing more than a story about a baby 
Something cute and sweet, but not serious and significant. Find a way to keep the story in Bethlehem. See, there is a welcome of Jesus that the devil is not troubled by, because it's a welcome that does not honour him. So we're going to want to know what kind of welcome does honour Jesus. Verse 46 builds the scene for what happens next. We're first told Jesus goes to a place called Cana of Galilee. We're reminded it's where he turned water into wine. And so John wants us to have that event from John 2 in our minds. That that event when Jesus goes to a wedding and they run out of wine and there's a, a social catastrophe about to unfold. But Jesus intervenes and he turns masses of water into wine. Jesus displays that he has creative power and that the purpose of his power is to bring an abundance of happiness. So, so in verse 46, on one hand we have the creator who comes to bring joy. And then on the other hand... We have a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. A royal official in the region of Galilee, so probably connected to the household of Herod Antipas. Now, now when we're told about this man, I'm not sure whether we are to think of him as one with privilege, connected to the royal household. Is he a man of power, of riches, maybe? Or, Or are we to think of him as a pagan? Herod was not known for his piety. It's likely that all those connected with his household would have followed his pagan practices. So are we to think of him as privileged or pagan? Um, I'm not sure. But whatever we think, he is something of an outsider in the Galilean crowd. And he has a situation which draws our sympathy. His son is seriously ill. We have a man presented to us who has been overtaken by the shadow that is common to all people. That the worry and the sadness of living in a broken world is filling his heart. And we're told in verse 47, he hears Jesus has arrived in the area. And so he goes to find Jesus. He says, it says, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. The heartstrings are pulled, aren't they, when we hear about this man's condition. And he's concerned for his son. And all he wants is for Jesus just to come and to make a difference. Jesus might come and heal his son. I don't know what we're to make then of Jesus' response. Do you see what he says? Verse 48, an unexpected response. He speaks to everyone. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. What Jesus sees is that The request of this man comes from the same attitude of all the Galileans who are welcoming but not honouring. Welcoming because they saw the signs, not because they honour him. And Jesus is saying this man is part of that same group. Now he wants Jesus to come and meet a need, but he doesn't want more than that. His heart isn't believing. He doesn't honour Jesus, he wants to use Jesus. It's the kind of welcome where, you know, if you... If you were to welcome someone into your home and then completely ignore them, don't talk to them, don't look at them, unless you need something doing. And then when you need something doing, you say, uh, go and clean the dishes, uh, go and make the bed, go and, go and make the dinner. Uh, all you want, that you've welcomed someone in just to use to do what you want. But, but then the situation of this royal official intensifies it as a challenge, doesn't it? Now, this man, he's not looking for a show. He does not want to to be entertained. He wants his boy to live. 
<clears throat> I was speaking to a guy a couple of years ago who was just in a real fix. Uh, he'd run into one of life's deep tragedies, stuck in the trench, and he, he was lost. He was, it, it was a mess. His heart was broken. He couldn't stop crying, and it was, it was awful to see him like that. But in his weeping, he cried out to Jesus. He asked Jesus to come and help fix his situation. But in the course of the conversation, though, this guy said to me, and he was very, very honest, he said, if this doesn't end how I want it to, I will throw myself into sin. I will not have anything to do with Jesus. Someone can cry for Jesus to help fix their life, but not be interested in Jesus. We can do that, can't we? We think, if Jesus can fit into the way we want our lives to be, that's great, but all we really want is to use him. And Jesus isn't cold towards this man. He's not cold at all. Jesus wants to give the man more than what the man is asking for. You see, verse 49, the man's only thinking about one thing, isn't he? See, sir, come down before my child dies. That's all he wants. That's all he can think about. Jesus doesn't do what the man asks him. He doesn't do it at all. He doesn't come with the man. Instead, Jesus provokes a kind of welcome that does honour him. See, verse 50, Jesus says, go, your son will live. Literally, he says, your son lives. Pause the action at that point. Now, what, what does Jesus speaking those words, that declaration, what does it do as, for that man as he hears it? He, he's come because he's heard that there is a miracle worker in the locality and he could really use a miracle in his life. And so he goes and he pleads and says, please come and heal my boy. And Jesus looks at the man and he sees what he lacks. And he says to the man, go, your son lives. The man has come to Jesus saying, is Jesus going to help? But at this point, that question just melts away. The question now that rises is, who is this Jesus? And what kind of a declaration is that to make? There's nothing seen at this moment. There's no puff of smoke. There's no flash from the sky. It's just a bare word that hangs before the man. Go, your son lives. What kind of word is it? Let's think about this word. It is, well, first of all, it's a word of grace. As this royal official, this man, is getting sucked into the darkness. You know, whatever we make of this man, whether he's privileged or a pagan, he is just a person, isn't he? Like all people who live under the shadow of death. And the shadow is deepening as his son life. His son's life ebbs away. Jesus responds to the sorrow of this man. And you know why he responds? Well, if we just zoom out from this for a moment, if we roll the clock back and hundreds of years, if we go back to when the children of Israel were cruelly oppressed in Egypt and God comes and he appears to Moses and God says, I have indeed seen the misery. I have heard them crying out. And I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come to rescue them. Why would he do that? Well, a little later, God reveals his name to Moses. He he speaks his character. He says, he is the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious God. He saw their suffering and was moved in grace to help, because that's what God is like. That is the nature of God. 
And now Jesus stands before this man and he sees his suffering. And he is moved to help because that is what God is like. That's his nature. And yet this word of grace that Jesus speaks is deep grace. He knows the man's needs better than the man knows himself. Jesus doesn't just want to heal the son. He wants to give something more. Because Jesus didn't come into the world just to patch up our felt needs. However desperate our felt needs might be. He is the light of the world. And he's come to shine in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome him. Jesus said, go. The man goes. He he takes him at his word. The man had had come to Jesus saying, Jesus, you need to come with me. That's how you can help. And he goes, knowing that Jesus' way is better. Trusting Jesus' way is better. On the way, he's met by his servants who tell him that his son lives. It says in verse 53 that he and his whole household believe. That all of them moved into this new state, this, this state of believing. That is now who they are. And, and the man in verse 53 is no longer known as the royal official. He's now known as the father. The father of a boy that lives. You see, Jesus' Jesus's grace and compassion didn't just want to extend to the father. But wanted to extend to this dying boy, not just to restore this dying boy's life. But you see, now what he's given to the dying boy is a believing father. So that when the household comes to believe, then that son is included in it too. The son too comes to find life. Full life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. John has told us so many times that all who believe have eternal life. And so Jesus restores the health of this boy, but through it, the boy's father, and then through the boy's father, the whole household come to put their trust in Jesus. A man who came to Jesus looking for life for his son goes from Jesus finding so much more, not just healing in this age, but life that will go on forever and ever and ever. And this belief, that's the kind of welcome that honours Jesus. It honours Jesus as full of grace. It, 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 want, it honours Jesus as the one who wants to give more than what we know to ask. He wants to give the man, through the man's witness, to the son, to the whole family, eternal life. Jesus has a better agenda for this man than he has for himself. That's what grace is, isn't it? Grace is getting more than what we deserve. It's it's, it's getting better than what we can ask for. Are we going to honour Jesus by letting Jesus decide what it is that we need, trusting that Jesus knows better than we do and that he's willing to give more than we are willing to ask? Jesus says to the man, your son lives. It's a word of grace. It's not just a word of grace, though. It's also a word of power. Now, Jesus speaks these words in Cana, and there's a boy who is sick in Capernaum, miles away. And Jesus says, your son lives, and the servants will later confirm that at that very moment, the boy recovered. Who is this? He spoke and the physical chemistry of the boy's body changed. A boy who lay dying miles away from where Jesus was. Who is it? 
John's already told us as he introduced his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Who can say your son lives and that word has such power to be instantaneously realised? It's only the word. Only God himself. That there is only one God. The one who is self-existent. The one who is, who is infinite in his being and in his perfections. The one who is unchanging in his greatness. The one who is most holy. He's most wise. He's most absolute. He is the uncreated majesty. He is utter sufficiency. He is all life and, and all glory and all blessedness. All of that is all found in him and only in him. And he needs for nothing. But from him comes everything. And he knows all things and he sees all things. He is God. As we sing, he is the creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. And in him is life. Life comes from him. He speaks life. And when he speaks life, there is life. And yet, of course, it's the same man. The man who spoke these words just earlier in the chapter was wearied by his journey. Had to rest at the well, thirsty in the heat of the day. Here is a man like us. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. The prophet Isaiah puts it like this. He says in chapter 57, this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the contrite and lowly in spirit. To bring life to the spirit of the lowly. To bring life to the heart of the contrite. And so that God of all glory, without ever stopping being God, became a man. And we sing the carol that low within a manger lies he who made the starry skies. Our God contracted to a span. Incomprehensibly made man. Now there's no miracle like him. It's the mystery of all mysteries. It's the, the adoration and the adulation of the heavenly host forever and ever and ever. Marvelling forever at the coming of the word became flesh. And now he speaks in John 4 and he says, Your son lives and creation bends and moves to obey the word of its maker. Now what can we do but to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazareth? But this power that he speaks, it's, it's not only the creator's power. It's also the redeemer's power. You see, he, he, in him was life. But the world was shrouded in darkness. The grip of death that holds humanity in its merciless grip, that is a merited grip. The world had plunged into darkness because we fled from the light. Not all people do it, following the pattern of our first parents, wanting to do it our own ways. We want to be sovereign over our own lives, and that death grip holds its sway. But the word became flesh, so that he could enter into the darkness. Do you see what he does in our passage, just in verse 44? He knows he will be rejected, so he moves towards the rejection. He moves towards the darkness. That's the pattern of his life. That's why he left heaven, wasn't it? To move towards rejection. That's why he journeyed through life in the way that he did. That's why his life took him to the cross. 
where we see that he is the man of sorrow, so he's shunned and despised and rejected. The word we see has become flesh, so that he can bleed and die. And the Baptist called him the Lamb of God, because those lambs of old pictured, that they pictured a substitute cast into utter darkness, so the guilty might go free. And then Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And the word became flesh on a mission of redemption. A mission to take away sin so that he would have a redeeming right. The redeemer's authority to say he lives. He lives on the basis of my redeeming work. Death has no power. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot win. Oh, that we would hear him speak that word over us. Not just a word of physical healing but the word of eternal life. And he has. He's spoken it. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The risen Christ still speaks from heaven. Speaks through his word, the Bible, and he says, whoever believes has eternal life. And he speaks it over you and he says, she lives. He lives. The fragment of your sin-shattered soul are being reformed and the curse of fallenness woven into your DNA is lifted. John chapter 5 will say that he will speak one day over your grave. And over your grave he will say, she lives. He lives. And the physical chemistry of your body will be reconstituted in resurrection life. Because Christ is supreme. Utterly. Utterly supreme. This royal official, he takes Jesus at his word and believes. That's the kind of welcome that honours Jesus. Not seeking him to do the one thing that we think he needs to do to help, but submitting all of our lives, all of our lives to his supreme grace and his supreme power. What then for us? Our passage shows the kind of welcome that honours Jesus and a kind of welcome that doesn't. The challenge for us is to think, how do we relate to Jesus Christ? Is he supreme? Or even in our relationship with him, are we trying to call the shots? What kind of welcome do you give to Jesus? Now, in, in some ways, it's, it's simple. Maybe too simple. Now, the welcome that honours Jesus, it comes in verse 50. Jesus says... Go, your son lives, and the man goes. Faith acts out the word of Christ. That's what honours Christ. The action of this man displays that Christ is supreme, supremely gracious, supremely powerful, supremely to be trusted. Now you imagine as this man walks away, someone grabbing him and stopping and saying, why are you going home? The healer is still there. And the man says, I'm going because my boy lives. And the person says, but how do you know? It's going to be better if you get the healer to come with you. And the man says, I know because Jesus said, and he told me to go, and so I'm going. An action that only makes sense because he's trusting Jesus. His faith acts out the word. That's the welcome that honours Jesus when all my ways are submitted to him, all my ways to his grace and to his power. And if he says go, faith goes. Is that the kind of welcome we are giving to Jesus? 
it's so easy for us to be vaguely spiritual. We work out our relationship with Christ, but really on our own terms. We might say he's supreme, but when he says go, there's not a lot of going. Faith acts out the word. Now, if his word says, don't get drunk, we don't get drunk because that's faith. If his word says, forgive, don't grumble, welcome one another, love one another. Bear with one another. Meet together. Give a reason for your hope. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? Whenever faith meets an instruction from Jesus, faith seeks to act out the word. Faith doesn't make excuses before the instructions. Faith doesn't pick and choose. Faith doesn't adapt the instruction to suit our personal preferences or or tries to make them more convenient. That doesn't honour Jesus. Faith honours Jesus as supreme, supreme in grace, supreme in in power, so it acts out his word. Faith seeks to know his word, to know what he said and act it out in all of life. And when it's hard, and it is hard, when it's hard, faith doesn't change the word. Faith seeks the grace from Christ to be changed. You know, if we ever find ourselves thinking, if we ever find ourselves thinking, I know I should, but... I know I should, but we should ask ourselves first, why should I? Is it what the Bible has actually said? And if it is what the Bible has actually said, well, what excuse would we want to give to the face of Jesus? How do we want to unpack the but of why we don't do what Jesus says? What reason would we want to give to the precious Lord who is supreme over all? And explain to him why we think our way is better than his. Now on the last day when he appears. And his face is shining more brightly than the sun. And we fall like dead people before the brilliance of his glory. And he reaches out his hand and he raises us. And he says don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look I am alive forever and ever. And what was the reason you decided not to do what I said? Is it because we don't think he has the power? Imagine trying to say to him, I know you said I should go. And I I know your word says that I should do this or or do that. And I knew that I should, but I I didn't because I I thought my life would be better my way. I I thought I had the power to to build a, a better life than you. When he looks us in the eye and he says, what reason? Did you decide not to obey me? Is it because you thought I wouldn't be gracious? No, do we choose not to do what Jesus says because we think he's miserable, miserly in his gifts? Doesn't the blood-stained stones of Golgotha testify to the depth of his love for us? The greatness of his kindness? And what reason can we find to excuse our obedience? And when our reasons dry up, all we can do is look at him. Look at the word become flesh, full of grace and truth. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The saviour of the world, the creator of abundant joy, the bringer of life, life in its maximal dimension. Eternal life, which is to know him. We look at him, we let all our excuses melt before him. And when we struggle to change, we keep seeking his grace to be changed. 
at this Christmas time, let's resist Screwtape's trap. Remember, Screwtape, the, the devil's trying to draw people away from Christ, saying if someone starts to think about the Christmas story, be sure to let the story go no further in his mind. Well, let's resist that. Whenever we start to think about the Christmas story, when we see a picture of a nativity scene, or we hear something about the true message of Christmas, or even just the name of Jesus, be sure to let the story go beyond, beyond Bethlehem. Let's watch how the story unfolds all the way to Calvary, all the way to the empty tomb, all the way to the throne of glory, and all the way to the last and final day when the Lord Jesus will return. As we live in that story, that's how we honour him. What sort of welcome do you give to Jesus? Let's take a moment to think in private about that, and then we'll pray.